Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Erlang OTP 26 final has been released. There's a handful of changes in there, but one we thought was interesting is how they changed the ordering of atom keys in maps. So OTP 25 and earlier printed small maps up to 32 elements with keys ordered according to the key alphabetically. But in OTP 26, as an optimization for certain operations, maps with atom keys are now sorted in different orders and the order is not defined and they change between different invocations. There's a little code snippet in the post. You can see that sometimes AB comes back, sometimes BC comes back. It's just different every time you invoke it. Luckily, Elixir 1.14.4 actually included the ability to request maps to be sorted when inspecting. So if you want to see them in the same order, you can always pass in sort keys and you'll get them back as you expect. Otherwise, they're going to be random. That most impacts when you're inspecting them. You know, like in a production system, it really shouldn't change anything because the map is still the same. But uh, when you're looking at it locally and trying to compare in your console and the order keeps changing or it's just not alphabetical and you're like, where is this key? That would be a hassle. That's where we'd feel it the most. Don't you do like sub-zero into your maps? No. No, you don't. Okay. (laughs) Another change that looks interesting is incremental mode in Dialyzer. So Dialyzer now has this mode by Tom Davies. This mode can greatly speed up the analysis when only a small subset of changes have been made to the code base. So that's really cool. I know it was always painful to run Dialyzer. It felt like sometimes it could take a long time. That looks really cool. It'll be interesting to see tools integrate with that. And, you know, there's a handful of other improvements made to maps and lists. So definitely check out the release notes if you're interested. Yes. And next up, Erlang OTP 27. We've already been seeing some news about what's coming up with that. And the big thing was this attention-grabbing headline that says, plus 0.0 will no longer be exactly equal to negative 0.0. Just going back to math class, I'm like, well, zero doesn't have a positive or negative sign because it can't. So you look at this and say, well, what is going on here? So thankfully, there is some explanation in the Erlang forums. And so just for some background, what what it says is currently the floating point numbers 0.0 and negative 0.0 have distinct internal representations. So if you view those types as binary, then you can see the difference. It's quite clear. And when you compare them for equality, it returns true. And that like that's uh, a strict equality that they would return that they are true, that they're equal. However, they are not equal in the strictest sense. And that was considered a bug that they were treated equal when internally they weren't. But they weren't really sure how to fix that. The OTP team wasn't, you know, without breaking things. If you recall, in a previous episode of the news, we talked about EarlFuzz, which is an Erlang fuzzing library. EarlFuzz found an issue where this negative zero and positive zero floating point values could be perceived more as a bug. So they think, okay, we need to fix this. So in OTP 27, they are going to make the fix. In Erlang, if you do a double equal, that will still evaluate to true that zero and negative zero are equal, but a more strict comparison will return false. So we have yet to see what the impact will mean for Elixir code. Will the Elixir compiler just make this not be an issue for us? Would it 
show up somehow. I don't know. We have yet to see. But it's just an interesting little outcome of Earl Fuzz really pounding on the Erlang compiler in the beam. Yeah, that's very interesting. Earl Fuzz is a fascinating concept, fuzzing in general. Next up, Jason Axelson wrote an article about doing a graceful shutdown. If you're wondering what that means, at the top of the article, it talks a little bit about it. It says, you stop accepting work, you finish in-progress work, and then you bring the application down. That's pretty interesting. You wouldn't want to be shutting down in the middle of processing important stuff. So this is a great little blog post about how to do that. It includes gen server trapping exits, responding to the SIG term for shutdown, even how to write a drainer for presence so that node A can tell node B it's going down in a controlled way and update presence information. It looks like a really helpful resource. So, And next, Jose Valim was on the Elixir Wizards podcast talking about the future development of Elixir and how he would handle a 2.0 release if that were ever to come. He's like, well, it could be like 10 years away. But it's kind of fun thinking about how he would handle those things because 2.0 is reserved as that breaking changes idea. But also in the podcast was a fun little origin story of the rainbow heart combo that he puts on PRs and how that can be a motivation for people. Anyway, it's a great interview. You can check that out. Well, Jose Valim also tweeted recently that a few months ago, he added a guide to the Elixir getting started docs on optional syntax sheet. So he wanted to pull your attention to this if you're interested. It talks a little bit about parentheses and how they can be optional, which is definitely something I've wondered about sometimes. So it talks about how an if statement can be inlined as a keyword list. And it's just nice to see these getting started guides being added to. And it's also good to be able to understand how all these syntaxes work so that uh, you can understand other people's code because understanding code and reading code is a big part of your job if you're writing code. And especially when you're new to Elixir and you're like, what the heck is this? How, how does this work? Yeah, there's some, there's some funky things when you're first getting into Elixir. Some edge case syntax is there. It's true. Like anonymous functions with captures, the ampersand ones. Like, what, what is this? I don't understand. Or yes. you're like building a, <laughs> you're building a, a tuple out of a capture and it's like, what on earth? <laughs> ampersand squiggly dollar one yep all right and next we need to talk a little bit about llama why do we need to even talk about llama what the heck is llama it's an interesting topic but the reason this is coming up now is sean moriarty recently did some work on nx on bumblebee to add support for the popular llama model so what is llama so llama is a large language model from facebook what originally happened is Facebook open sourced a large piece of the model, but they held back the weights for how to actually make it directly useful with the way they'd trained the model. But then somehow, I don't know how, the model's weights were leaked and made public. With that, then things started taking off like crazy, where people started iterating on this model and accomplishing things in a matter of weeks that Google researchers were saying, oh, this will be like a decade before we can solve this problem. And it's been crazy, the amount of excitement and change is happening around Llama. So with this change, Sean Moriarty is saying, hey, we are going to be able to play with Llama with Elixir. And that's really neat because I saw like a, a PR recently where ways to shrink down Llama to run in six gigabytes of RAM, you can run this on a laptop, right? And when you said shrink down, I was like, oh, so like 512 or something on like on a free server? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're still gonna need like a GPU. But when we talked previously with Jose Valim and he was 
expressing concern that it's these large models like OpenAI and BARD that in order to even compete in that space, you have to have these huge models and it just becomes something that we can't play with at home on our own machines, right? It's like locked behind the big paywalls of big companies. And with the open sourcing and the leaking of this data, people are getting this stuff to run in more purpose-built ways, smaller, faster, and they're iterating quite quickly. And so I'm excited to see what we can do with this with Elixir. So just as a heads up, we will be talking with Sean Moriarty in a couple of weeks, and we'll certainly want to pick his brain on some of this exciting stuff going on here. Yeah, that's really cool. I saw somebody tweeting in response to Sean, and they said, does this mean that we might soon have a really smooth way to access a tremendously powerful LLM, which supposedly outperforms GP3 and many benchmarks right in our Elixir application without having to call out to open AI? <laughs> like he planned it. And Sean says, yes. <laughs> so that's really cool. Well, time for some conference roundups. We've got ElixirConf EU videos slowly making their way out. There's a keynote titled Using Elixir and Phoenix to Build a City Software Infrastructure. We'll drop a link to the show note if that sounds interesting to you. And next, MPEX New York City. There is a code, Thinking. If you enter Thinking as the code, you get $100 off your ticket. And the event is on June 9th. Thinking what? What does that mean? Like, like our podcast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the speaker lineup looks great. It's a single track conference, so you can definitely check that out. And last up, Lambda Days, a conference that covers functional programming from the academic and industry perspectives is coming up in June, covers topics on many functional languages. And it looks like Jose will be talking about meta programmable functional notebooks with Livebook. That'll be June 5th through the 6th in Krakow, Poland. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Jason Stibbs. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm glad you could join us because recently you blogged about how Rust and Elixir work well together. In Chris McCord's keynote at ElixirConf EU, he specifically called you out as being advocating for like DX improvements. And I wanted to get your thoughts on some of those things around debugging live views. There's lots of fun stuff that you've been doing that I'd love to talk about. So before we get into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I live in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've been doing uh, Elixir backend development for a long time, 10-ish years. I've, I guess eight or nine, I guess is roughly, basically since the beginning of Elixir. At the start of this year, I joined Fly as a senior framework specialist, um, where I write about Elixir and Phoenix and you know, I'll also work on Elixir and Phoenix and try to make them the you know, great for fly, but also just great in general. Prior to that, I had 10 years of consulting and contracting. I ran a small contracting firm and, you know, I started out with Ruby and JavaScript, a lot of JavaScript, and then a bit, you know, bled a lot with Ruby and uh, the memory issues and, yeah, 
it was really difficult to do concurrency. The app I was making was doing a lot of API calls and third-party calls. And we pushed those into Sidekick, but there's only so much you can push into Sidekick before you start wondering like why you're using so much memory to do pretty simple stuff. When I heard about Erlang and I heard about you know how great it was for doing I.O. and having lots of processes and doing real-time stuff, I was very interested in it. But before Elixir, Erlang was kind of, it was very esoteric. It still is pretty esoteric here in Erlang. Um, but it was very esoteric. It didn't really have rebar, but it wasn't really well adopted. It had, didn't have a package management system. It only used Git. It didn't have a consistent build system. So like Erlang was really tough as a developer to like, be like, all right, I'm going to leave Ruby. I'm going to leave JavaScript and I'm going to go to this language that feels like I've just entered you know, early, the late 90s or something as a development environment. And then you know, Jose popped up and started doing Elixir stuff and talking about it. And I knew about him from the Ruby world or knew of him from the Ruby world. So I was like, this is pretty neat. Started playing with it. You know, the rest is history. How I got involved in the early days of Elixir and Phoenix is that I just I used it, and if I found a bug, I reported it. You know, that's <laughs> that's a key piece of open source uh, contribution. Everyone talks about like the code and like how many what what do you build and what do you do, but like a key piece of open source contribution is people using your stuff and telling you if it sucks or is broken. You know, there's nothing worse than to de- deploy a new feature and get no feedback at all because you. How do you know? How do you know anyone's even using it? How do you know there's not a bug or issue that you just don't hit? So I'm going to pause right there and just say we need to call out that you are a Phoenix core team member. And so you're you're doing some of that active work on creating new features for Phoenix, but also fixing bugs and helping. I'd love to hear like what it is you do as a core team member. Like, are you do you triage? Like what kind of stuff happens there? Well, for a long time, it was mostly just Chris and Jose and then a bunch of us that are on the core team just kind of help out as needed. You know, Gary and I do a lot of docs work. Gary was joking the other day that he speed run, he's doing a speed run of the context guys to see if they're still accurate. You know, just like running through the docs, making sure they work, triaging issues, trying to fix bugs. I kind of end up doing more of the JavaScript bug fixing just because it's very salient to me. But being a sounding board for, you know, for Chris and Jose and like talking about ideas, helping things get designed. And for the longest time, it was just Chris. That was, he was the only one getting paid to do anything with you know, Phoenix and a little bit of Jose or a lot of bit of Jose, I should say. So it was, you know, if you're not getting paid to do something, it's hard to devote a lot of extra free time to things. It's not all glorious. You know, I'm not doing a ton of stuff all the time. It's mostly day to day. It's mostly Chris. It's, and the rest of us kind of support and do smaller features or bug fixes or triage or Mm -hmm. try to help out where we can. The very first thing I did was kind of help write the first WebSocket and channel implementation. You know, I, I wrote the plug logger back in the day. Um, so like you see the little micro micro thing that was one of my things that I that I snuck in there, the micro symbol, the little mu u thing, yes, because it was you know we were I was getting decimals often enough that I was like this would be cool. It turned out to be great marketing, right? It was like when I when I started playing with Elixir and Phoenix, I was like, oh, I love this. This so they're so fast. The responses are so fast that they're li- that they're using this other unit. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. And more recently, like I've been pushing. You know, because Live View is like, we're getting close to what I would say done with Live View with the streams and the forms. And a lot of the issues we're getting now are very sort of specific and they're very unique, which is great. It means like we've covered a lot of the major use cases. Once streams and forms are deployed, they'll be the sort of the last big thing for Phoenix. I've always been pushing for things that feel wrong or feel weird or things that we could do better. I, we don't always agree on like what the solution should be. Chris and Joe, they are more like, well, if you have a problem, you should just fix it. You know, like it's not our, we can't write all of your code for you. Whereas maybe I lean more towards the rails where maybe we can do more, but you know, it's a give and take. There's no right answer to these questions. So, well, I'd love to talk a little bit about Rust 
and Elixir because so for whatever reason, Rust is like super popular, right? Just just broadly in tech. It's like, oh, you know, Microsoft is starting to adopt Rust and oh, Rust has started to make it into the Linux kernel. And, you know, Rust is kind of everywhere, which I think is cool because of it's solving a real problem, right? A real problem that people have with C and C++ and having managed memory and, and safe memory. And it's like, that, that's really important for like system level stuff. But because of that, there's a ton of packages or crates that are created. And that, that means there's a lot of functionality that's already been written that is very performant and it's available. And so you just recently uh, wrote an article about how Elixir and Rust are a good mix. And I just want to talk about that a little bit because I want to make sure people in our community know that this companionship is there, that this this can work. Especially, I know when people are considering like, oh, I'm thinking about exploring this new Elixir language. It's new to me. And I want to make sure that I have hatches, like safety hatches. I can get out and do something in another language if I really need to. I, just, I need to know that that exists, right? That's that escape hatch. And so I, I think it's really good to talk about that so people know this is available, but also just like your experience with it, how this works. So why do you feel that uh, Rust and Elixir like, as a combination is important? I think you, you kind of hit on it. You know, like when you use C and C++, like they're a little kludgy and old to use, but like they don't have a common package manager. Like if they have a package manager, maybe it's the Linux package managers, right? Like apt-get, brew, or arch package manager. Like whenever you want to install dep, it's always install some lib something from apt or brew. You know, I alluded to it earlier with Erlang, but like before it had rebar three and use hex for package management, it was like, if you wanted to use a dep, it was get clone something, right? Or install some dep from apt-get. I think Cargo's big win is sort of bringing the systems programming into like sort of like the modern package ecosystem. So like having Cargo, like there's not a similar Cargo thing for C and C++. You just can't like, you know, say, oh, I need to work with images. So I'm going to go find what an image thing is. And and then you get like a thousand different answers to do it with C and C++. And some of them will use Ninja to build or they'll use CMake to build or use regular make or they use Basil or like there's all these different like, so it's not like I could sit like Cargo is beautiful because it gives you a consistent build environment and a way to reference a dependency in packages that doesn't include like the entire world of you know packages. So like that's great just on it. I think that's a big part of his success, to be honest. Like it's a great language and does cool stuff, but I think that having that tooling is humongous. So Cargo is Rust's uh, package manager. Is that what they, is that what it's called? Yeah, well, uh, yeah. It's a tool for doing the package management. You know, you do Cargo depth, you know, get or whatever, and you build and you run and it'll get your dependencies for you and read your tar cargo.toml. Okay. Similar to our Elix mix and hex. So their website for hosting them is crates and the crates that I like, we have hex. And then they have mix, which is sort of the command line tool interface for building and running with Rust applications. And you can fall down further and use Rust C, similar to that we can use Elixir C or Errol C to compile direct files. But yeah. So there is a lot of you know parallels there. So like just having that ecosystem is like humongous, in my opinion. It makes it much easier for someone who's not 100% in the world of C and C++. Like I'm not in the world of C and C++ or really Rust day to day, but I can go to Rust. I can look for a package and see this is how you use it. You know, do a cargo new to get a little a product set up, add the depth, and then I'm off to the races. I don't have to like think about all the different ways I could build it or why, you know, how to build it for different environments and machines. It just kind of sets it up for you. Just, just like Elixir and Mix and Hex do, which is, you know, I think a big highly underrated aspect of modern programming is that anyone can just get a depth 
for their project and not have to vendor like right you know vendoring and stuff has pros and cons but like just getting started getting you over the hump of zero to something is a big is a big deal how does that work then what tooling were you using to help elixir work with that uh, the rustler project is an elixir package sort of you know it's deployed to hex and it's been around for years and years it was very early early days but just recently, in I think 2021, it got a pretty big update that uses Rust macros and Elixir macros more heavily. So the interface is pretty simple. But the Rustler dependency is like you just add the Rust depth, you run mix Rustler.new, which will generate a, a directory with a cargo app kind of set up. You know, it's got your cart, your toml, and it's got you know a basic sort of I think one you know it adds two numbers sort of empty file main.rs file. And then just sets up all this stuff for you, just kind of like a mix Phoenix new wood. And then you're off to the races, right? You have, so in that directory, is just a standard Rust project. So you can do cargo, any of the cargo commands, you can install any cargo depth and just run your Rust stuff from that directory. That's the subdirectory of your Elixir app. So that's how I got started is I just went to the Rustler readme and followed their getting started instructions. And yeah, it was uh, pretty painless. Like, you know, like I said, it was being able to just add a depth to our Elixir project you know, run one command and then hit compile and it just works is, you know, always a great feeling for me. <laughs> and it gets over a lot of sort of like, you know, the hump of getting things started and getting rolling on something. Yeah. Um, and then you can kind of just take it piece by piece. But yeah, the Rustler team had a big update a couple years back where they made it, it used to be a lot more handholder. You had to define a couple things and you had to convert your variables for you, but it, they kind of like auto, automatically do that for you now, which I'm sure has some small cost, but like the cost isn't, big enough for me to super care about it and just because what it enables us to do right is then just pick any depth from cargo use the depth in airlang elixir relatively safely and they also added some special macros rust macros I'm, i think their macros i can't remember their exact name in rust you know there's they're like macro definitions or declarations you put over a function similar to decorators in python or our at things sometimes in elixir or our module constants that we sometimes put above things in elixir so that you can say that this NIF is CPU heavy or the C, this NIF is IO heavy, which are with Erlang, that's like, it's called a dirty NIF, a native implemented function. And you have to tell it that, hey, schedule this because Erlang has its own scheduler. It doesn't use operating, it uses operating system scheduler, but it's got its own scheduler on top of that. So it schedules processes and it runs your NIF as a process. And it, if your process takes too much time and runs for a long time, it, it's going to lock up an entire schedule a worker and it's going to slow everything down and if you run four of them or n of them and it matches the number of processes you're running it'll just crash your system if you use an airline dirty nif which is typically a pretty difficult thing to implement by hand it's like it's a lot more involved than just you know using a, a basic c nif with rustler you can just add a single line at the top of a function and you get it for free and that's that's pretty amazing to me and same with io you can just instead of like spending a lot of time thinking about Rust and Erlang and how they all work together and like having to fully understand how Rust works and how Erlang works. You can just add a macro and they just make it work. It's it's pretty incredible. I don't exactly know how it works. That part works. That's pretty magic to me. I'd like to someday learn it, but I don't, you know, maybe not now. They definitely are doing some pretty incredible stuff. But yeah, shout out to the Rust Rustler team and the Rust Rustlerium organization because they're just doing a lot of really cool stuff. I'm coming from the perspective where I, I'm aware that this exists. I've never actually needed to uh, reach out and grab something from Rust code because I guess it, it depends on the kind of problems I'm trying to solve. Like I've worked with another team where they were actually building 
uh, devices that were hooking up to audio equipment, right? So they were really going like, we need to be down there with NIFs. And this kind of a tool would be super helpful for that, right? I, I want to have direct access to this other hardware. And, and I need to do that through NIFs. Are there situations that are maybe gotchas or just heads up? Like, is it going to be super easy to integrate with any and all kinds of Rust packages that already exist? Or are there things to watch out for? Anything that you can share? That's a good question. I think, I mean, anytime you're using a dirty NIF, there's some a chance for things to go wrong. If you're, you lock up too much CPU or your IO process never returns or never, you know, gives up, you know, halts or gives up some space. Um, I'm not exactly sure, like, if there's a specific IO format that they require you to use, but it, it seems to just work from what, all the examples I've looked at. So I'm not 100% sure that there's huge gotchas. You know, it's the same problems you'd have with any NIF, right? You want to be careful about how much memory you're using. You want to be careful how much CPU you're using. You want, you know, it's running natively. You don't have the safeguards and the garbage collection from like you would have in Erlang. If you have like sort of a long running resource, there's a a Rustler resource uh, macro that you can use. It's in the doc document in the docs and in the examples where you can say, this is a resource. This is a memory that, Rust owns, and you can use the Erlang allocator to allocate it so that when that process dies, Erlang will free the memory back up. So there are tools for doing some more complicated, you know, maybe not complicated, maybe not the right word, but complex stuff. So far, I've mostly used it for fairly straightforward image processing. In my case, it was, you know, if you follow my blog post on Fly, you can kind of see the path that I had taken, right? You know, did image magic for image processing, and then I did the Elixir image library, which uses the C++ fix library, NIF, and none of them supported some of the features I needed, which in this case was specifically animated web WebP images or just animated image processing at all. Some of them handle GIFs, but not super well. Whereas the Rustler one did support these and it's like, well, let's give it a shot. You know, let's just try Rustler and see if this Rust image library actually does what it claims to do. And it, it did. It worked the first time, which is great. So, you know, ended up writing a blog post about it. But in that case, I just had to use the the Rustler CPU heavy or CPU bound macro. And it just worked magically. Like when I was running it locally, it would be fine. But when I deployed it and I tried to run something, it would just lock the whole live view and the whole page up because that CPU process was, you know, in, you know, deployed on a smaller server. It didn't have as many resources. So it was contending, creating a lot of contention with the airline. It would lock the page up and halt it. By adding that macro, it just it made that entire problem disappear, just like magic, which was pretty incredible. Like, you know, I thought for sure I was going to have to go down that rabbit hole of resources and managing, you know, pauses and, you know, yielding to the Erlang server myself manually, but it just handled it. So I, it's hard to know. I'm sure there's like somebody who the Rustler people may be listening to this and be like, Oh no, you know, in that case, please tweet it at me and I'll <laughs> or yell at me, email me or something. Cause I'd love to know, but yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible work they've done making it really simple and easy just to kind of jump in and avoid many of the, the obvious foot guns. I think it's worth pointing out that I have never actually needed to use Rust for anything that I was doing with Elixir. Yeah, same. But I also recognize like what you're doing, like when you're, I need some special image features and maybe there's already a library that does this. You know, it's like, why not leverage that if I can easily integrate it? Exactly. And I think there's, I have a couple project ideas that I want to play with. For example, there's not a quick or HTTP3 library yet for Erlang. There are some projects that have popped up recently that will, are, are working on it where they use C++ NIF, use the Google C++ version, but there is a fairly 
advanced version in Rust that, you know, theoretically I could bring it over and experiment with it as a NIF. But it's definitely on the sort of bleeding edge of like systems programming stuff. We have a lot of the default stuff just in OTP. We have Gen TCP, Gen UDP, we have SSL. A lot of the low-level system programming stuff, all the file handling and file reading and operating system stuff is built into OTP. And typically, you either have to make a C++ NIF or wait for OTP to do it. So I think that, like it, there's sort of the leading edge systems programming stuff. Rust seems to have an implementation pretty much always. So that's kind of nice. I think some of the like more math-heavy cryptography stuff, there's like a lot of really good Rust libraries for that, which you could probably get into. I mean, I think a lot of the crypto people who are using Elixir kind of got into that with Rust and Rustler and using Elixir to sort of make the API and higher level stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't professionally, outside of this one example with images, I haven't had a lot of reason to reach into Rust yet. Most of the stuff is fast enough in Elixir. And with NX and some of the math stuff that they're doing, there's less and less reason. And with the, the you know, Erlang's adding a just-in-time compiler, there becomes less and less reason because... If, if you have a hot path that does a lot of math, the JIT should kind of catch it and, you know, make it and optimize it over time. And that's only going to get better. So there'll become less and less reason to need it. There, I guess there's probably also like memory sensitive stuff. Like if you're like reading a giant file, like that's what the live book explorers example does is whenever you're reading this, these massive, you know, big data, you know, CSVs or, or Parquet files or various data formats for exchanging data around. You don't really want to do that in Erlang because it, there's a lot of binaries and Erlang binaries are a little bit bigger than a regular binary. So if you can optimize that with Rust or C, that that would be great. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. The, I think the Explorer's library does a lot of really cool stuff on that front. And they use Rust Letter to integrate with a Rust library called Polar's, kind of a similar name play. But yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity in sort of the really kind of bleeding edge stuff for Rust Letter. Well, like you said, I've almost never professionally had a really good reason to use it. Like if we were doing embedded stuff, I would 100% reach for it. Or things where I couldn't shell out to something or like performance is so critical that I needed to to call, talk to it directly. Yeah. So I think that's just worth mentioning. It's like you, dear listener, if you're newer to Elixir, what I think is important to take away from that little discussion about Rust is there is a powerful escape hatch that makes it easy to integrate with Rust and access all the things that are in that ecosystem and it's beam friendly, right? That's that's the takeaway. But then the other main point is I've never actually needed it with anything I was doing because Elixir is really, it's really quite fast. From other languages I've used, it is very performant as is, but it's awesome that I have that option if I need it. So I don't, I never feel like I'm boxed in, right? If I'm making the choice to go to Elixir, I'm not boxed in. I think a good example was the Discord blog had this nice blog post about how they were optimizing a specific data structure. Yeah. Basically it's a map, a large map. And, you know, they had they tried all these elixir things and they kept getting them more and more time and buying them more and more time using built-in airlang tools and airlang data structures. But eventually they just they added a a Rust. They, I think they used Rustler even and added a Rust depth just so this one specific use case, the sort of hot path they could be really fast and optimized. And, you know, that's, I think that's a perfect example of what you should do in real world is try, you know, use what you have before you reach for the shiny new exciting tool in Rustler, because you're probably not going to need much more unless you grow to this, you become discord and get really lucky and grow to billions of users, whatever. <laughs> well, I, I dropped in a link to that discord blog post. It's using Rust to scale Elixir for 11 million concurrent users. So yeah, it's a, a good read. Awesome that they shared that. 
Well, let's let's move on. I want to talk a little bit more about live view and debugging. And it was during Chris's keynote when he was talking about some of the things that might be coming in the future. You mentioned that you generally advocate for how can we make this better? How can we communicate more? The DX around live view and errors in particular. I know that's a problem I have. Like when I'm working with a live view and I get an error, what ends up showing up in my console is a big red blob and I have to now start trying to figure out what happened. What is it you're pushing for and you know what is the problem as you see it? You know, kind of zooming out a little bit, like one of my my core competencies or one of my core quirks is that like if something doesn't feel right, I can't like just drop it. I have to like, even if it's working and it doesn't, but it doesn't feel good or feel right or something feels off about it, like that there's something like, a, you know, feel it in your gut or something and just the back of your mind. Like I'll try to, I'll usually chase that and see like what's actually happening. What am I, am I doing something wrong? And that usually leads me to cases where I find a bug or I find a better, maybe not, maybe I don't even find the solution, but I can just have like, I'm probably not the only person who feels this, but I am maybe the only person who's willing to like put the time in and say something, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people just are like, Oh, that's weird. It doesn't work. Whatever. Move on to the next thing. Just, you know, cause they're very focused on getting their job done, but there's just something, a quirk in my personality where I like, I can't like it. Something doesn't feel right. I'm just going to like, it's going to chase me and I'll be like, you know, laying in bed, trying to fall asleep and that'll pop into my brain. Like that didn't feel right. We got to, uh, what is going on there? <laughs> so like with, with, with live view, there's, I think a lot of small cases and examples of that, you know, like I've always pushed with, you know, some of the heat changes and the heat stuff. I always pushed us to like, try and think of a better way. We ended up copying a lot of stuff or not copying, but working with uh Marlis from surface library, yeah, surface to like bring a lot of those features over because like, that was just a, like, at the end of the day, there's not a better way to do a lot of those things that Marlis did with Surface, right? Like, you know, putting the for loop and the if statements just in your, in line with your, your, with your HTML and having your attributes and your classes and stuff kind of in line with your HTML with that special squirrely syntax. And I think with streams is like a perfect example where like, you know, if you've ever deployed streams in anger, like they work really good for like this, the, the, the example that Chris put for Twitter, right? Where it's just like a stream that always grows forever and you don't really think of it anymore like but if you ever have a stream or a list of items where you need to remove an item or add an item or it's in a form and you're adding and removing items the interface really kind of falls apart and like you have to do hacks with visible and so like those two things i think you know chris did a fantastic job with streams and forms and like way better solution than i would have ever come up with especially for forms with the checkbox i think jose came up with that or whatever but that, that that's you know that's beautiful but i think with errors and with live view I've definitely seen this with more with junior developers specifically. A lot of more junior developers will run their console just right in VS Code. And I'm not sure exactly where that comes from or like if that's just a thing that they learn from school or they learn from like, you know, a code school or if they learn that from like an online course or something. But it's not something I ever do. <laughs> like I always just run terminal code in terminals. And then if I use VS Code, I'll use it as an editor. I don't think to like run like and i know there's like a, a neo neo vim and vim terminals that people run that's it's very foreign to me but like i think that what happens in that case is that they don't get used to looking at the terminal for errors or the terminal for problems you know the console log they just run their server and then they go and they develop their website and that you know when it was a, a plain old dead website a plain old plug website with phoenix not a live view website an error would happen and boom you we throw this giant plug that exception page up with the exception 
options for fixing it, examples, nicely formatted, the whole stack trace, the whole connection and all the things that like a really useful page and like, you know, migrations aren't run, we give you button to press run migrations, like super useful. But in live view, if that exact same scenario, if your migrations aren't run and you start it, it just, the page will just reload. It crashes and reloads. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The page will crash. You'll get a little loader thing that pops up and then the page shows up. And especially with junior engineers, like a lot of times it, this would just be a stopping point for them. Like you could see like, there's like, wait, what happened, right? A pairing with junior engineers. And they would just sit there and be like, okay, that's not what I expected, right? I expected, you know, this button click to do something, but it turns out they, you know, typoed the button event name and there's no match and it's a no match error. So in my opinion, that's a bad UX. And I think everyone agrees now. I finally convinced everyone that that's a bad UX for development. Production, there's a disagreement on how we should handle the scenarios, but in development, that's a bad developer UX. But even going further, like going a depth step deeper, you you mentioned like the logs pop up and you get a right, big red you know level blob of text, but because we automatically reload the page, if that page does a bunch of active queries or hits an API or you know it logs a bunch of stuff, that red error almost always falls off the fold. And if you're running it in VS Code or an editor, you know it's just this little drawer at the bottom of the page that immediately disappears, and it's like you know the first thing you see isn't the big red blob; it's logs and everything looks normal, right? It looks fine. And unless you have, you know, splits and all this like hyper, you know, super dev, whatever, super setup, where like your editor is all over here and like you can see it happening as you click, which most people don't do that. It's just not a great UX, right? Because you know, I know to scroll up in the logs, but I've been doing this for 10 years, right? Right. I'm extremely used to reading actual logs. So I think the first thing, you know, we could talk about a lot of options and solutions. There's a lot we can do for user to, you know, experience. Like I think in the event that your live view crashes or has any kind of error, we could just wrap a try catch around that in Phoenix and show a version of the plug debugger page that works with sockets and, and live view assigns, right? Like it could show the, the socket assigns, it could show the exception and the stack trace, but it could also show, you know, this, the session stuff or the secrets and all of your assigns. And like, it could recommend that you run migrations the same way that we run migrations. It, we could even like catch obvious error no match errors for handle event, right? And just recommend the exact right code to put there, right? Like we can do all kinds of stuff with a sort of plug debugger style page. That's one option. It's so like the tricky bit here is that with regular controllers and MVC, you know, request response, like when we kill the response and we return a plug debugger, you know, the default thing you do is hit F5 and refresh once you fix it, right? And it just loads, or maybe the live reloader will reload it for you if you edit the right pages and stuff. But with live view, like it's a process that's living. So like, do we show the plug HTML and just kill the server and then you hit refresh and it restarts everything? What do we do with that, right? We can't pause the world and show you the error if it's an error coming from some other server. So like the handle event is an easy one because it's user interface. It's There's only so much, so fast the user can do it, right? Unless it's a typing one or whatever. The user can only so quickly, but like a, a, a pub sub or another process that's running and sending your live view process messages right. can really spam you. Something async, yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've actually worked at companies where they've had, you know, sort of live updating things that are sending you lots of messages. And then if it fails, it's just like failing constantly. And it's failing so fast that you can't, like, you just have to like literally stop your Phoenix server so you can stop and look and see what's actually happening, right? Because you can't. Like, and what do we do in that case, right? Do we just refresh the page showing plug errors constantly? Do we stop this process? And then errors happen somewhere else, but at least we can show you plug. So there's lots of ideas what we can do with that. And there's other, you know, other avenues we can go down making sort of a, a live view debugger. So kind of like the Python debug toolbar or 
I think there's one in Rails tool where it's like a thing you run only in dev that runs on every page and shows you stuff like that. I was going to mention, yeah, there's the Phoenix Profiler little package that I had used, which puts a little thing on the bottom. Before we had verified routes, it would really help disambiguate which route I was on. The main problem I had with Phoenix Profiler is as new versions of Phoenix or LiveView would come out, it would break because it wasn't core. It almost certainly has to be part of a core to keep it up to date, which another thing to keep up to date. Right, exactly. Like it, the, the momentum, right, of, of making any changes, like, oh, we have to bring all these other things up to date at the same time. And, the, you know, we have the Phoenix dashboard, which does have some debugging, like it'll show you slow feet, actual queries, and it'll show you memory issues and stuff. So there is some of that already we have in. And, you know, I think the terminal logs are really underrated. Like, I can't tell you how many projects I've showed up and look like a genius because I find performance issues by just looking at SQL queries flying through this thing, right? Like you see the same SQL query run, you know, you load a page and you see the same SQL query run like 20 times, right? Like that's a pretty good sign that you have some sort of N plus one happening in there, right? Like you, you're, you're not optimal. You're not doing that query as optimal. You know, you can just do it once and, you know, preload or something, Mm -hmm. or you can just see that like suddenly like this one query happens and like 16 other queries happen. Like maybe you can merge those into one. Like, I just think watching the logs is a good idea just in general. But like that's, you know, maybe that's because I have a lot of experience with SQL and Ecto and Phoenix that I'm allowed, you know, that I'm capable of doing that. But yeah, so I think with the debugger, like Michael Crumb's kind of working on a sort of a debug tool, toolbar that, yeah, that like there's like, that's the thing too, right? There's like infinite complexity of how far we can go in this. Do we, do we ship it with Phoenix? Do we add it to the dash Phoenix dashboard library to be a separate new library? So I think for the first version, what I want to ship is going to be sort of that first one where the process is stopped. I tell the process to stop, you know, shut down. I render on the page, the, the plug debugger. I just replace the entire HTML with the plug debugger. And then if you hit refresh, it'll load the correct thing, rebuild the whole live view section connection and start over. I think that's probably the best initial starting point. That is a little tricky because I have to ship a new version of plug and then we'll depend on that. And I'll have to ship a new version of Phoenix and Phoenix live view. So it's a little tricky to like coordinate that, that entire process. Chris is definitely on board where we like we should go further and like make a much more advanced user interface that has a lot more cool features. And that's that's all right for him. But I think we can get something smaller out now and then really think about what it should be. And if you think about it too, like because Erlang is real time, like you cannot just stop a process, right? We can't, you know, like if you think of React debugger or the redo debugger or some of the browser-based debuggers, it's all one process. So like they can just literally stop time and say, this is time. Like maybe there's some hooks we could get. But like the, if we do the IEX debugger, like that literally stops the entire server and that at that breakpoint. And we can't do that with LiveView because there's all these other processes to keep LiveView alive and, and operating healthily. There's the channel, there's the endpoint, there's you know, PubSub, there's all these different things that are running. And the Ecto, you know, connection pooler. Yeah, it's a parallel and concurrent world. <laughs> right, right. So we can't stop it. And we can't just say stop this one process either, because it's gonna receive messages. And the minute you wake it back up, it's gonna like. So maybe maybe there is a way we can do it. Maybe if someone's listening and they know a way to do it, you know, you should reach out. That would be cool. Um, but there's not a way that I know that we can stop the live view process and say, let's step through it or let's rewind and go back to this message in the mailbox or rewind and go back to this state. Like doing that kind of stuff that you can do with JavaScript is amazing that you can do it at all in JavaScript. I wish we could do it in Elixir, but it's not going to be, it's going to be pretty hard because we have to basically proxy the entire process interface capture all the state and store it somewhere, which could be a, a ton of stuff, right? Like I said, that noisy, the noisy gen server, the noisy message sending pub sub is like 
the constant bane of this this project because suddenly you have thousands of messages that maybe maybe they don't change the state at all. Maybe they're dropped. Do we know that they're dropped? Do we care that they're dropped? Like there are a lot of questions, right? So debugging is hard, but I think it's an important part of UX, especially for new people that are coming to Elixir and junior people, like telling them that something is wrong. Russ is famous for this, right? Where their error messages are famously really helpful, right? They have little arrows that point to the exact character and like they have all this color and like links to documentation. Elixir, I think Elixir messages are really good, but they're definitely not up to, you know, there's not as much information in an error as there is in a, an error for Rust because of the type system and all the different. We don't have that much information, but I think if we can do better with Phoenix and LiveView, that's a big win. Yeah. And I think really like what you're getting at there is it's the the runtime error with a process that has some where the state becomes invalid or like a match error, you know, like that, that's where it gets a little bit, it's not like a compile time error where we can, Elixir has a lot of good feedback it can give around a compile time problem. The runtime errors are harder. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting little insight into some of the concerns and things that you guys are thinking about on the core team for Phoenix. But before we go, I did want to just ask like, what are some of the things that you're working on now? Like what might we see from the future from you? Well, I'm, I'm, Really enjoying Livebook and working with Livebook. So like basically all of the stuff in Jose's Livebook week or the the Livebook team's week of updates, you know, Explorers and NX and Polars and Bumblebee, all their updates. I've just been playing with that and having a great time. I think Livebook is in a really, really good spot. Early days of Livebook, I was crashing it like every other day, but now like I, I don't ever crash it. I never have to restart the entire Livebook process. It's, it's, I think Livebook is an incredible accomplishment. And I don't think we, <laughs> I don't know if we talk about it enough, to be honest. You know, Jonathan and Jose and the whole Dashbit crew has just done an, just an amazing, amazing job. Like if you've never had, a, you've never written a Kino plug or looked into Kino and like, how can I extend Livebook? Livebook and Kino are just incredible. Having a lot of fun playing with some of the OpenAI GPT LLM stuff. Like Bumblebee enables us to use a lot of those models right from the Hugging Face website and right from some of these advanced tokenizers and stuff. Unfortunately, I don't have like a super beefy GPU to run some of these things on. So I have to really limit it to the smaller CPU things. It makes, makes me really want to get a, a, a better GPU. So like, like an NVIDIA one. Yeah, you can't even get the big ones, whatever. If you look at the prices, like the A100 or the H100, they're yeah, like yeah. $20,000, like $30,000 for one. Oh, my heck. It's yeah. like, wow. <laughs> like, like, But yeah, it's I, so like I'm very interested in Bumblebee. And I think as the models get more and more efficient, you know, like with some of the LL, like, uh, llama stuff like you can run locally in your machine i think it's really exciting it's it's a bummer we can't run that directly from elixir <laughs> maybe we could if i made a nif but uh <laughs> well uh we talked we talked about this in the news just before sean moriarty just merged in a bumblebee pr that adds llama support yeah i saw that i still need you still need a lot of memory to do something with it but yeah yeah that's it's cool it's really exciting so i'm having a lot of fun playing with it and i think once we can run it on more constrained hardware like we don't need the world's biggest it's going to get really cool and exciting for elixir so i'm really excited about that that that's really where i'm excited too i, I think if one thing that i want to do shout out to like you know jonathan and jose like they always are doing cool stuff so like whatever they're doing like even if i'm not like i'm not an ai researcher i don't deploy machine learning at all but like if they're doing something and they're excited about it it's a pretty good signal that it's good and it's exciting and that's going to be meaningful for us yeah Right. So like it's it's well worth just like playing with it, getting some familiarity, running some of their examples in a live like they have pretty good live books. You can just copy the live book right onto your local machine and run it and it'll do something. It won't be incredibly it won't be like blow your mind impressive, but it'll be really cool. So I think live book is 
you know, and Bumblebee and, you know, the whole NX community. They're, they're just doing a lot of really cool stuff that I didn't think was ever going to be possible on Elixir, to be honest. And now here it is. Here we are doing it. So, yeah. And NX in general. I think when Jose first started doing NX and I thought, oh, that's interesting, but that's kind of like for the researchers, you know, I don't see any real benefit there for me, but it's cool. You know, I don't want to miss out on this whole, you know, AI revolution. But then, you know, I, I didn't even know about Hugging Face at the time. And now we have all these models. And now it's like, wow, that is super powerful for Elixir. And I don't have to be a researcher. I don't have to understand all that stuff. Uh, so long as we get Bumblebee support written in by people who do understand how these models work and what parameters they need to take, then I can just take a pre-built model and start doing really interesting stuff in my Elixir apps. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah, and shout out to my NX, my gentle introduction to NX blog post that I recently did. I've been getting a lot of direct messages. I wish people would be more public feedback, but you know, whatever. Get a lot of direct messages about uh, you know, how they knew that tensors were a thing and that they're important, but like they didn't really realize that it's just a data structure. You, know, you can just do lists of items or even a single value. You don't have to do thousand dimension matrices and stuff. So if if you're like curious about NX and you're curious about tensors and Bumblebee and stuff, like, you know, that might be a blog post that helps you just at least conceptually get over the weird hump of like, what is this tensor thing that's like littering the code? It litters all the examples and it's like in the image library that uses it and it's in Bumblebee and it's in all these things. It's like just having some familiarity that, oh, it's just essentially a list, but fancy list, you know, the, the blog post will hopefully get you over that hump and help uh yeah, so I got a link to that in the show notes. It's tensors and NX are not just for machine learning. I love that. All right. Well, Jason, I've enjoyed talking with you. But if if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, where should they go to do that? Yeah, so I'm Peregrine on Twitter, like the, the, the falcon, the bird. Peregrine on Blue Sky. And I I'm, on my Twitter, I have links to my other socials too. So that's probably the easiest way to find me. I'm also on the Fly blog. Jason at fly.io is my email. So if you have questions or thoughts, feel free to send me an email. Well, thanks so much. I I really appreciate the insights into kind of what's going on in the Phoenix core team, but getting a a little glimpse of the the considerations, like how do we solve this? What are the, what are the bigger goals that we're trying to accomplish? So uh, I love that. Yeah. And how do we deploy this? And (laughs) (laughs) does this make sense? Do we want to maintain it? Important questions. Yeah, exactly. It's engineering. Yeah. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.